Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, we talk with La Mesa City Council member and candidate for the California State Assembly, Colin Parent. Colin's been a leader on housing, transportation, and environmental issues. We talk about how his day job as executive director and general counsel at the nonprofit Circulate San Diego informs his council work and vice versa. We also talk about the changes in the policies and, more importantly, the politics of housing. Finally, he gives some good life advice for those who want to add public service to their already busy lives. Enjoy. La Mesa City Council member and California State Assembly member candidate, Colin Parent, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Hey, thanks for having me, Ryan. So you are in the process of a campaign. You're trying to make the leap from city government to state government. Tell me a little bit about what that's like and how it's going. Yeah, so... It's definitely a leap, but it's a leap from state government to city government back to state government. So I actually started my career in public policy working for the Jerry Brown administration at the State Department of Housing and Community Development. I did that for a few years before coming back home to East County, San Diego, and you know, running for office and serving on the council. And so now I'm running now for the state assembly in that same area. And it's definitely different because the district is much, much larger than the city of La Mesa and much more complicated and diverse and all that, but also familiar in some ways because it's you know, sort of working on some similar issues and with some similar folks from my past life working in the state administration. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about you started working on housing policy with then Governor Jerry Brown, went back to La Mesa and have been pushing ADU policy and smart growth policies. Now you're looking at going back to the state. Talk to me about what you've learned about addressing the housing crisis here in California and everywhere from serving at these different levels of government. Yeah. So I joined the Jerry Brown administration after working on his campaign in 2010. You know, you might have heard he won. And so I got appointed to work at the Department of Housing and Community Development you know, without a real serious like housing background, I had done some study studying of it in law school and, you know, had kind of an interest, but not a real expertise. And then when I got at the State Department of Housing, you know, really it was very, very educational, very eye-opening and just sort of the scale of challenges, you know, up and down the state are pretty severe. And at the time, the the focus, my focus then and, and the department's focus was was really on strictly affordable housing, deed-restricted affordable housing. And that was really the main issue that I had worked on and then was involved in. And then as time went on and as I you know shifted toward local government, 
both my understanding and I think just the broader economic challenges sort of changed and that while we absolutely continue to have a real severe need for affordable housing, deed restricted, you know, permanently subsidized homes, we also just have like a real strong shortage of homes overall. And that kind of housing shortage, maybe it definitely wasn't on my radar, but probably wasn't on a lot of people's radar when I worked at HCD more than a decade ago, HCD, the State Department of Housing. And now that is, I think, really one of the dominant issues for voters, for residents. And it contributes not just to people's you know, ability to pay the rent, but it's, you know, it's also drives homelessness and all sorts of other big challenges that are facing California and, and our region. Over this last decade and a half of engaging on these housing issues, what are you hearing from your residents? There's obviously an understanding of the crisis, frustration with homelessness, but also you know, some pushback against what they see as increased density or other changes to their neighborhoods. What are you seeing on the ground in your community and, and as you travel around this new assembly district that you're campaigning in? Yeah. So, you know, if people don't know the city of La Mesa, we're about 10 miles east of downtown San Diego. And we are, you know, pretty much a bedroom community for the most part. You know, a lot of people live here and, and work somewhere else. That's for the most part how La Mesa is. And a lot of people, including my parents, when they were, you know, around my age, a lot of people in La Mesa and East County moved to the area because it was more affordable than where they previously had been living, you know, in the city of San Diego or closer to the coast. And so affordability has been just an important part of the East County and La Mesa in particular. But when I first started campaigning in 2016, when I ran and won for the first time, I would definitely hear those stories about people's history of coming to La Mesa for a more affordable place to live, to buy a home for the first time, to start a family. But I also heard a lot of people saying that it was too expensive now and that they were going to be moving farther east. They were going to be moving to our nearby jurisdiction in El Cajon, or they were going to move out of the state or otherwise. And that that is kind of a new phenomenon for East County and for La Mesa. It used to be a refuge for affordability, and in some ways it still is, but in a lot of ways it isn't any longer and people are really struggling. And so, you know, I think that what you're, you're really hearing like affordability and affordability concerns driving both people's reasons to move to La Mesa, but then also reasons why they no longer can stay. And you've been a vocal proponent of loosening limits and making it easy to build accessory dwelling units. Can you talk about why you see that as an important component of housing strategy? Yeah. So in La Mesa, a number of years ago, actually kind of one of my first first couple of big policy initiatives, we followed the initiative of some state reforms that had basically came out and said, hey, local governments, you're not allowed to continue to restrict accessory dwelling units, granny flats, backyard cottages, that you have to allow them in certain circumstances. And that's an action that the state legislature took. And we locally looked at that and said, yeah, that's a good idea. We should do that. And so we not only adopted the state's rules, but also went above and beyond and made it even easier for homeowners to be able to make those kinds of investments on their properties. And it's worth understanding that, yeah, like this is really good for housing and housing supply. It creates more units, creates more places for people to live. And that's good. And we really need that to address this housing supply issue. But it's not just about that. It's also about empowering homeowners and empowering property owners to actually be able to do what they want with their own property. 
And I think this is kind of how I was, was part of how I was able to get it across the finish line when we were adopting it in the city. Because when we were adopting it, we didn't have like a democratic, progressive, pro-housing majority. I don't think that would be a good way to characterize the makeup of the council at the time. But we did have a mix of people like me who are really interested in affordability and think that's a big issue. But we also had people who are, who are more conservative, who really care about private property rights, who really you know want to promote the rights of homeowners to do things with their property. And so we were able to make a coalition about this. And I think that's one of the powerful ways that we've been able to do some housing reforms is be able to marry the interests of people who care about affordability and who are really driven by that, like myself, but also with other folks who have a you know, have a strong interest in private property and making sure that people who own property are able to do something and, and make investments for their own families and for their own future. Absolutely. I should say my dad just this week is beginning the process of building an ADU, converting a garage at our house as a way to plan to have a caregiver be able to live there as he ages. And, you know, it's creating an opportunity for him to age in place and also provide affordable housing for an important profession in our community. And, you know, you can just see the options that open up for both the property owner, the potential renter, the whole community when you allow this sort of flexibility on property. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And this might be the situation for your father as well. But like, we had some people came in and testified when we were considering that issue. And, you know, some of the ones that really stayed with me are people who came in and they kind of talked about how, you know, one person came in and said that they they're very sick, they had cancer, and the, the accessory unit gave them an opportunity to generate extra income so they were able to stay in their home. You had other people come in and talk about how they were going to be using it for one purpose in the near term, maybe to generate extra income, but they had plans to invite their college-age kids to come move back with them you know, sometime later. And I think this is what's really interesting about these policies and giving and property owners choices on this is that they can create these investments on their properties and use them for different things at different periods in their life. And I think that's really important. So some people might say, well, you know, I don't want to do that. I don't want to see that in my neighborhood or I don't want my neighbor to have that. And it's important to recognize that people really do have different housing needs at different points in their life. And that's okay and normal. And just giving the flexibility for property owners to be able to do, you know, reasonable things like adding a granny flat to their property you know, gives them opportunities to do, you know, either to make more revenue, to keep in their home, to have a little extra money at the end of the month or to age in place like so many people want to do. Totally agree. Part and parcel with housing is transportation. <laughs> so in addition to being on the city council and running for state assembly, you have a full-time job as the executive director and general counsel of Circulate San Diego. Can you talk a little bit about how you see transportation as fitting into the issues that we see around housing and quality of life and climate change and all the other ways that a transportation or lack of one can impact the community? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when I started working in public policy, I worked at the State Department of Housing and Community Development, and they were a part of a state agency called the Business Transportation Housing Agency. And at the time, there was a you know real clear acknowledgement in the structure of California government that housing and land use and transportation and where people work were all interlinked. And the structure of government has changed, but those issues remain very much linked. And so what we have, I think one of the big challenges that we're seeing today is that as costs of homes are getting higher, people are moving farther and farther away from where they work or where they're going to you know, be commuting. And that's 
creating additional burdens for people's travel time, their commutes, not to mention the, the climate impacts of that. You know, the longer people are driving, the more greenhouse gas emissions they're creating and all that. And so if we're going to try to address our climate concerns as well as our affordability concerns, we got to make sure that we're tackling how people are able to get around, not just you know where they're buying or renting a home. And so in my day job at Circulate San Diego, we're a think tank. We focus on transit and safe streets and sustainable growth. And one of the big things that we try to do is focus on policy that marries the concerns about housing affordability and also transportation. And that means you know supporting more homes near public transit investments. That means making it easier and safer to walk and bike and you know, just sort of trying to do it the best that we can to really think about these things as interlinked and making choices that acknowledge that relationship. I'm struck that you've really engaged at policymaking from so many different perspectives and professionally. Have you always been interested in policy? How did you get to where you are today? Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I've definitely been interested for a long time. And I think like a lot of people who went to law school, like I watched a lot of West Wing, <laughs> right? And so there's definitely some of that, some of just like, you know, sort of popular culture as an informative. But when I was growing up, and I grew up in the unincorporated part of El Cajon, which is, you know, just a little bit east of La Mesa where I live now. My dad, he worked for the utility company, San Diego Gas and Electric, and he was a public affairs representative for the company. And so that meant that he went to city council meetings all around East County, trying to you know talk to folks about permits they needed or infrastructure they needed to get built and, and all those sorts of things. So I actually started coming to La Mesa City Council meetings when I was like 10 years old because you know both my parents worked. And so sometimes you know we would just, me and my brother would tag along with my dad. And so I'm sure that that experience contributed to my interest in public policy and, and in public service. And so there was that. And then of course, you know, I was in the Boy Scouts. I'm an Eagle Scout. That definitely teaches you a lot about public service and citizenship. And I'm Catholic. I was an altar boy. I believe in a doctrine of good works. So I, you know, really from the very beginning, you know, I was, you know, had this notion of, of public service and making a contribution to society. And then as I got older and got, you know, wonkier, kind of figured out that public policy was really the best way that I felt equipped to contribute to those things. Talk a little bit about the transition or the different approach that happens when you're running a policy think tank. Why do you then run for office? Like what's the, for, I think there's probably a good amount of our listeners who work in policy on some level, but not as an elected official. Talk about making that jump and what you've learned from that experience. Yeah. So I joined Circulate in 2014. And then in 2016, I decided to run for city council in La Mesa. And, you know, at the time, I was not the head of Circulate. I was the, the policy council. I was sort of the, the policy lead for the organization. The organization is like eight people. I think it was seven people at the time. And so I had this, um, you know, I was a, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have the big chair, but I, you know, but I was doing a bunch of stuff and I was kind of, you know, making some progress, but I felt like I still had some bandwidth. Like there was still some stuff that I wanted to do. I wanted to make a bigger impact than I was able to make just in my day job. And, you know, and there's a couple of ways to do that, right? You can go get a bigger job, right? You know, that that's an option. And didn't look like my executive director was going to go anywhere. And so, so I, I didn't, wasn't going to get like promoted anytime soon. 
but I wanted to make a bigger impact. And I kind of looked around and and had, you know, talked to some friends and, you know, really felt, you know, ultimately that, you know, running for a part-time city council job like La Mesa, La Mesa's part-time, you know, would be a good way to add on to what I was doing in my public and policy life and make an additional contribution in sort of a different format in a different venue. And so it was definitely a little bit of the, you know, I was pretty anxious about it. I wasn't wasn't sure I was going to do it. I kind of went back and forth a lot, but, you know, ultimately decided to get in there. And, you know, one of the things that some of my friends were who kind of egged me on into it were, were telling me is they, they had said, you know, hey, Colin, you've, you had spent all this time doing things like the Young Democrats and, and doing a, I just started a, a leadership development program, you know, about five, six years before that, doing all these other things to try to encourage other people to get involved in public policy and in public life. And one friend of mine in particular, I remember very distinctly, is like, yeah, Colin, you did that for all these other people. Now it's your turn. You got to do that. And and I was like, okay, I guess, yeah, I guess you're right. And so, you know, I took the leap and did it. Fortunately, I had a, an employer and a boss that were, you know, accommodating and, and flexible and, and allowed me to, you know, gave me some some space to do that. I had some accrued vacation time, of course, which was good. And then when I, you know, got in there, yeah, I mean, it really was, it really sort of met those expectations, was able to like continue to 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 do my work and at Circulate and advance our, our issues on a regional scale and, and in other jurisdictions. But then also took some of the skills and and experiences that I had from my day job to my community in La Mesa and be able to bring some of that to making public policy in a city uh, where I live and 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 working on issues you know far more diverse than the portfolio that we have at Circulate. I'm interested in how you brought your experience from La Mesa back to your day job and will hopefully bring to the state assembly, which is when you're working statewide policy in a state as large as California, that's 40 million people. If you're working on regional policy in the San Diego area, that's millions and millions of people. Communities like La Mesa are often aren't at like the top of a policy agenda because just because you're working at such scale. How do you think you're going to bring your experience from La Mesa to policymaking when you're trying to solve these big problems, but have to do so, you know, across hundreds of communities like La Mesa? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And you know, I haven't had the experience of serving in the legislature yet, but you know, I know people who serve in the legislature who have prior experience in local government, and I think that that's you know, you can pretty it's pretty clear that you can tell that that experience in local government really affected them and gave them some perspective about what it is that the state legislature does, what state policy does, and how local officials you know have to navigate it or are constrained by it and all that. And so, you know, I think there's a, you know, some, sometimes you'll see in the state legislature, they'll come out with some policies and cities or, and local officials would be like, oh my God, how are we supposed to do this? This doesn't make any sense. You clearly don't, you don't know what we're dealing with down here. And some it's the opposite where it's like, oh, they clearly like people in the legislature are familiar with challenges that are, that local governments have and they're, and they're trying to craft solutions to, in the context of understanding those challenges. And you know some of them are are accessory dwelling unit rules. So the lots of local governments, including my city of La Mesa, throughout California, they used to have really restrictive rules that would say no, you really basically can't build a granny flat in almost any circumstance. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but basically one of the reasons is one of the key reasons is the politics of approving those things are challenging for local governments. It's very hard for a local city official to say yes to more homes. And 
Maybe it shouldn't be. I actually think it's more popular than local officials think, but but this is what local officials feel and they and they feel constrained about that. And so some of the the efforts in the legislature have been to, you know, to overrule those local officials and say no, you can't say no to those things. But what's interesting is that there's been some I've seen some polling data from the League of Cities, the League of Cities of California that is basically show that most elected officials want more housing than they permit in their own jurisdiction. And so what that shows is that there's like the local officials know they should have more housing. They actually want it personally, but the politics are just too tough and they can't they can't do it. But some of those guys go out and graduate to the legislature and then they can make those reforms in the legislature where it's politically more viable to help solve a problem that is befuddling local officials. And so I think those are some some examples where you know that that sort of perspective from local government can help inform you know policy making on a on a broader scale or in a, in a bigger format. And talk about I think we we're talking pre call and you're saying you know you La Mesa sixty thousand people now you're going to represent six times that many. How do you go about building relationships in a context like this where you have to stand up a campaign very quickly and understand you know. The differences between one community's needs and another community's needs, and how you could try to serve them all in the state legislature. Great question, Ryan. We're we're still figuring it out. <laughs> I think one thing that is really important about you know running in a big district and 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 trying to represent a, a large and diverse community is you really shouldn't be starting from scratch. And so for me. Like yeah, there's a lot of a lot of people in the 79th Assembly District where I'm where I'm running for for state office who I don't know yet and and who I'm you know going to meet. But there are a lot of people outside of the city of La Mesa who I do know already, and it's because I've you know worked in people's campaigns over the years, or I've you know worked with them through my job at Circulate San Diego, or where I've partnered with other local elected officials in other jurisdictions on. La Mesa matters or or matters related to to my professional life. And so so having some sort of built-in relationships, some some leaders in in the communities that are in the district that are not, you know, not places that I currently represent is absolutely going to be essential for me to sort of make those connections and get to know people and and all that. And so there'll be additional, you know, campaign things like door knocking and text messages and all these other sorts of tools for for getting to know people. But I think what I've tried to do in in my my political life and professional life is to really, really have a broad and diverse network so that I'm able to work on a diversity of of things and, and work with a diversity of, of people. And so I'm going to be leaning on that, you know, really hard in the next year and a half as we build out the campaign and, and deepen those relationships and, and, and get get more acquainted with communities where I don't have quite as much experience. Last question. I think listeners have gotten a real good sense of the number of balls that you're juggling in order to try to impact your community. Any time management suggestions for people who are you know, working full-time jobs, want to look at serving an elected office or volunteering on a campaign? starting a leadership development program and all the various other things you've done like how do you manage all the activities you've taken on over over time yeah it's tough and like <laughs> i don't want i don't want people to think that it's like easy peasy or that i've like figured it out and you know that no problem it is a genuine challenge and and something that i you know struggle with all you know all the time but there's a couple of things to to kind of think about like some good rules of thumb 
I mean, I think one is, you know, I keep pretty rigorous to-do lists and and try to, you know, have them sorted a little bit. You know, if I have a meeting with every week, I have a one-on-one with, you know, different people on my staff and I kind of keep a different to-do list with with each of them that I can re- refer back to when we have their meetings. You know, very simple, mundane things like that. Having a day job that is flexible and accommodating is important. I do think that, you know, for people who are thinking about running for office, it's tough to do that while you also have a really demanding day job. Like, I don't know that I would have been able to run my first campaign if I had been the CEO of Circulate at the same time. And I had a more junior role that was more flexible, and that was probably really essential to being able to do it. And so that's something that people really need to have like a real hard look at, at at their priorities when they're thinking about, you know, you know, taking the plunge for office if, if they really, you know, do they have the job or should they move into a job that's more flexible and accommodating? But then there's other stuff too, like, you know, you got to make sure your friends and family are supportive. You got, you know, if you have a significant other and or, or kids, if they're not supportive of the of the effort, then, you know, probably shouldn't do it. And I think there's just some other things for sanity. You know, you got to make time to, to hang out with friends once in a while. You got to take a weekend off once in a while. I have a meditation practice. Like I sit quietly and focus on my breath for a few minutes every day to try to get myself settled and things like that, that really kind of help you help people, you know, just sort of get some clarity and and not be totally overwhelmed by the the experience are, are really important. And I don't always do that stuff like I, like I ought to, but it's certainly the best advice and, and advice that I try to follow. I think that is good, good advice. I appreciate your being honest about, you know, what roles work with what other roles, you know, the famous aphorism that, you know, you can have everything, you just can't have it all at once. Not a bad thing for folks to keep in mind when they're trying to figure out, you know, how best to serve. Oh, I think that's right. And I think there's a, you know, there's a temptation, you know, if you're a, you know, ambitious, high-performing person, there's a temptation to like, to try to do it all and to not acknowledge your own limits and to forget that there's only 24 hours in the day and that you have to spend some of those hours sleeping. And I think it's just, you know, it's just important to be, you know, realistic and, you know, you don't want to be so realistic that you're self-limiting and you're not, you know, striving and, and reaching and challenging yourself, but you're not going to serve your community well if you don't have the time to actually, you know, work on policy issues for the community. You're not going to be a good leader of your city if you're spending 80 hours a week in the office on non-public business. And so it's just, it's, it's just important to, you know, just really have a hard look and, and make sure that you're, you know, balancing your priorities, but you do also have to balance their priorities that, you know, local officials like me and in my city, like we, we get a thousand dollars a week, no, a a month and a thousand dollars a month. And that's just like not enough to pay rent. And so you got to do something else, but it's just a matter of figuring out how to balance, you know, your professional needs and with your goals to serve your community. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate all that you've done, are doing, and and will do. We've loved having you in New Deal and look forward to supporting you in all these various roles. Thank you for joining us today. And we we will look forward to hearing more about your efforts in La Mesa and also in the, about your campaign. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. No, it's been a pleasure. And the New Deal has been a great experience and, and so many incredible people. And it's just an honor and a privilege to be a part of it. Thank you. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.